Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. It's my privilege to read this Bible verse, uh, verses for you today. It's from Mark 5, verse 1 to 20. <clears throat> Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man had lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Thank you, Kane. Well done. That's great. Thank you, Kane, who's going to be coming and bringing our message this morning. And uh, we're doing a, uh, a few one-offs as we head towards the September holidays, mate. So thanks for sharing with us this morning. Uh, good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Kane. I'm a teacher here in the middle school slash uh, high school. Um, I want to look at this passage this morning. Now, I want to just say from the outset, I know from my reading that Christians have varied, uh, various ideas about the existence of spiritual uh, beings. Um, I myself believe such things are, are real, um, based primarily on uh, my pastoral experience and having to deal with particular issues. And I think the problem with, with some Christians who uh, tend to... I guess, interpret such things as, for example, that might say it's probably more mental illness that this person was suffering rather than something spiritual. 
I think part of that probably comes from um, a more of a Western mindset uh, and probably they're coming from their own uh, cultural experience. I think once you step outside really of a Western uh, cultural experience, you see that such things are quite prominent around the world and in particular the missionaries that we send overseas have to deal uh, with spiritual things all the time. So that's my take on it as I, I guess I delve into interpreting it for you. Um, I believe that the person was actually possessed uh, by demonic forces. Uh, if you disagree with that, happy to have a conversation with you uh, any time. But what I want you to point out first is that Matthew 5, 1 to 20 really is the second half of an event. And the, I think one of the problems with this passage is when it's been translated and put into chapter and verses, it kind of starts the chapter in the middle of uh, an event. And we need to remember this is the second half of a trip that Jesus took the disciples on across the Sea of Galilee to a place called Decapolis, which was uh, a region on the Sea of Galilee. I've been reading a, 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 a particular book at the moment, and I came across the story the author tells of uh, a trip to London. And I want to share with that with you as a bit of an introduction this morning. He said, some years ago, I was visiting the, visiting the town of Bedford in England, the reason most tourists go to Bedford is because it is a home of the famed 17th century writer John Bunyan, who penned his immortal Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, in the heart of Bedford, he says, is a giant statue of Bunyan. And some prankster has painted uh, giant footsteps from the statue to the public restrooms, uh, as if to say that Bunyan actually still lives. Uh, he says his book still lives in the hearts of millions. Uh, it allegorically tells the story of how pilgrims struggled and wandered through life's, uh, life's pitfalls until he found a marvellous or the marvellous message of the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. The writer said we visited the museum that housed a translation of every language into which the pilgrim's progress had, had been translated. He said, you need to know that outside of the Bible, that book is in more languages than any other. After we visited the museum, I commented to the woman at the front of the hall who sells the tickets to the museum. I said, isn't it amazing that an ordinary mender of pots and pans wrote a book of such profound significance, profound impact around the world? He said she paused and said, I suppose so. I haven't actually read the book. And the writer says, I just about fainted. He said, how amazing that one can be so close to a treasure and miss it altogether. How amazing that one could be so close to a treasure and yet miss it altogether. I find it interesting that these disciples were chosen by Jesus Christ himself. They have seen Jesus casting out an unclean spirit. We see that in chapter 1. They have seen Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law, also in chapter 1. They have seen Jesus cleansing and healing a leper. They have seen him heal a paralysed man in chapter 2. They've seen him in chapter 3 heal a man with a withered hand in front of them. And yet, 
the first half of the story, which we didn't read this morning, we see we have a boat full of these closest disciples, experienced fishermen, who are terrified due to finding themselves in a common but terrible storm on the way to Decapolis. And so they wake up Jesus and they say to him, they basically accuse him of neglect. They say, teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Which is in chapter 4, verse 38. So Jesus stands in an incredible, powerful, miraculous act. As you know the story, he stills the storm. Just like that, bang. And what's the response of those who are closest to him? Verse 41 of chapter 4 says that they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be? Who is this? They were so close to Jesus. In fact, the closest. They had witnessed extraordinary things, yet they had not understood his true nature. They hadn't come to grips with his divinity and his power, and thus they miss the message of his mission. As a result, even though they were so close to Jesus and had witnessed so much, they missed the treasured opportunity of participating in a wonderful lesson when the boat finally arrives at its destination, Decapolis, which is our focus this morning. So I think the greater lesson of this entire event or passage, I believe, was not what happened in the boat, though that is miraculous. It tends to be what we concentrate on in this whole event. But I think the actual significance or greater lessons was where the boat was headed. The disciples failed the storm section of the tour. And as a result, they missed a wonderful lesson where Jesus was teaching them about the very heart, the very heart of God and his divine nature. Jesus said in chapter 4, verse 35, let us cross over to the other side. Get in the boat, we're going to the other side. The area of Decapolis is predominantly a non-Jewish area. It is a Gentile area. It was made up of 10 cities that were really independent of Rome. And Jesus says to his disciples, we're going to the other side, we're going to the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. Essentially, get in the boat, we're going to pagan land. And nothing more is mentioned about the disciples until after this event. Now, I find that intriguing. What happened to them after Jesus stilled the storm? What were they doing where were the disciples? I wondered if they're still cowering the boat, trying to work out or figure out who Jesus was. Or because they're Jews, they're so absolutely offended by what confronts them when they arrive at the other side that they dare not even get out of the boat. 
However, the key question for us this morning is not where are the disciples, but rather where is Jesus? And look at what confronts Jesus when he gets out of the boat. The first thing Jesus is confronted by is a graveyard. Jewish people considered tombs to be unclean. They were a popular haunt for demons. It was part of the lakeside where there are many caves in the limestone rock and many of these caves were used as tombs in which bodies can be laid. The time is probably night, it's probably late because they left in the evening and in uh, people's understanding of that day, night of course was when evil spirits were thought to exercise their greatest power. At the best of times, day or night, it's an eerie place. Numbers chapter 19 verse 16 says, Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died a natural death or anyone who touches a bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Jesus should not have brought his disciples to this place. It was essentially breaking the Jewish law or tempting them, I guess, putting them in a situation, not to be tempted, but they could accidentally touch a grave. And I think in this opening scene, Mark sets a stage for his ancient readers and to us to feel, I guess, the suspense of this foreboding confrontation with this man. The second thing that confronts Jesus is a man possessed by demons. This is not getting any better for the disciples. Right after leaving the boat, it says, before ascending the nearby hills, Jesus encounters a man with an unclean spirit. The man was demon-possessed, as verse 15 clearly shows. Now, Jesus had expelled demons before. We know this. There had been the first instance mentioned in chapter 1, followed by, generally by a campaign of doing this. However, this situation was unusual. The man, it says, was under long treatment. And the medical treatment for this fellow was to load him up in chains and drive him away from populated areas to isolate him in the hills and the graveyards. And verse 5 said he was crying out in pain and cutting himself. It's interesting when you look back, for example, at 1 Kings chapter 18, you see that actually pagan worship involved cutting oneself with stones, a particular type of pagan worship. And uh, along with that, to also be given, I guess, uh, to uh, a, a, an incredible uh, supernatural strength in conjunction with spiritual possession. And this destructive force upon this man, rather than turning outward violent towards others, vented itself on the patient in senseless self-torture and mutilation. Because all human solutions had failed, he was put out here. Out of sight, out of mind. Jesus then acted decisively and divinely. Isn't it an interesting response by the spirits in verse 7? What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Isn't that fascinating? Evil 
recognize the nature of Jesus, his divinity, while ordinary people, even those closest to him, were slow to see it. Keep in mind, there was a common assumption at the time that this passage was written, was that when a demon uses a precise name of an opponent, it could be interpreted as a challenge. The question could also be paraphrased, I guess then, as a defence. Why are you interfering in this Jesus? And it goes on. I employ you by God that you don't torment me. The demons actually appeal to God for help to keep Jesus from driving them out or interfering. And in verse 8, Jesus says, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. What is your name? Craig Keener, a New Testament scholar and historian, wonderful writer. Anything you can get hold by Craig Keener, uh, grab it. He is a fantastic scholar of the New Testament. He says, identification of spirits' names or the name by which those spirits could be subdued was standard in ancient exorcism texts. Actually asking the name was a common thing. However, this is our only example of Jesus seeking a name. And he doesn't even end up using the name in this exorcism. Now, of course, the, the demons respond with, we are legion. We know a Roman legion included about 4,000 to 6,000 troops. So this man is hosting a large number of demons. And yet these demons plead with Jesus to let them stay in the area. They plead with him, send us into the swine. So the first thing Jesus is confronted by is he gets out of the boat and he's standing in a graveyard. The second thing he's confront, confronted by is a demon-possessed man. And the third thing that Jesus is confronted by is a, a herd of swine or pigs. The Old Testament forbade Jews to have any contact with swine. Leviticus 11, 7 and 8 tell us that. However, the owners of these swine, swine were probably, or pigs made, probably not Jewish because of the area. And only Jews or very non-observant, sorry, only very non-observant Jews or Gentiles are raised pigs. But a Jewish reader would think of pigs as among the most unclean of all animals and probably rightful hosts of demonic spirits. I don't mind a good pork chop, by the way. I'm just throwing that in. But they were and are still considered forbidden food. In fact, a lot of modern Jews would not even touch, Orthodox Jews would not even touch a pig. Now, what kind of environment did Jesus take his disciples into? A graveyard, the presence of a demonic, possessed man, and a herd of pigs. I mean, come on. What is God trying to teach us here? What is Jesus trying to teach his disciples? The demons enter the pigs and they run off a steep place into the sea and drowned. I've mentioned this in a schoolyard, this actual text. I'm going off tangent a bit. The first question that kids ask, what happened to the demons then? 
I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that. Some Jewish traditions actually taught that demons could die. And so perhaps many ancient readers assumed that they'd actually been destroyed with the, the pigs, or at least disabled uh, with their hosts. People hear about this miraculous healing, and they come out to find the man sitting, clothed in his right mind. Can you imagine being part of that crowd? Come and out and see this fellow. Come and look at him now. And all people marvelled. However, again, rather than celebrating, they say to Jesus, leave. Get out of here. Why? Why would they say that? Uh, perhaps, I thought, maybe economic interests. Uh, we don't want more herds of pigs being thrown into the river. It's costing too much. Uh, maybe their prior knowledge, uh, it was said that there were Greek, often Greek, wonder-working magicians who kind of wandered the countryside. Perhaps they thought Jesus was one of them. Uh, they, they feared him, they distrusted him. Jesus did leave, but he left behind a changed man. Jesus tells the man to go home and tell everybody about this wonder-working God. No, he doesn't. He says, go home and tell them about this God who had compassion and mercy upon you. Go and tell people what he's done for you. Now, as I look at this passage, the whole event, I think there are a couple of wonderful things to take from this passage. Number one, Jesus has incredible authority and power over all physical things and spiritual things. Now we see that in the first half of this story. Jesus has incredible power over all things. The second thing I think we're reminded of is that once again we're reminded of the lengths which Jesus goes to to reach the lost and the struggling. Those deemed unworthy, outcasts of society, to demonstrate God's compassion or heart for those kinds of people. Years ago, I was travelling into, it's now called Mellon College, but it used to be the Queensland Baptist Theological, Baptist Theological College. And it used to be over the south side. You'd go through a road called Gap Creek Road. And I was driving in my little Ford Laser at the time. I wish Chris was around because he would be able to service that for me. The mechanic, Chris Brown, who's one of my students, the mechanic wasn't great that I was using at the time. But I was driving my little, and it was, it was rattling all over the place because of the road. And this dude rides past me on a Harley Davidson. You know, beard over one shoulder, flying in the wind plaited length of hair down to here, you know, big Harley Davidson. Gave me a fright because of the noise with his black jacket on and thing. And I thought, ooh, you know, a bit, bit of a tough fellow. And then I followed him. I thought, gee, he must be going where I'm going. And then he pulls up in the theological college and parks. So I pulled in and parked next to him. I found out that he was actually my lecturer doing an oh. intensive... Uh, and one of the most intelligent people I've ever met, a philosophy lecturer and theologian. 
And I hesitate to tell you the story that he shared because I know some of you will be uncomfortable by this. But throughout the week as he taught us philosophy and apologetics, he told us this story. He said, I love Harley-Davidson bicycles, motorbikes. Sorry. Sorry, Sorry, Pete. (laughs) And he said, and I love going out on rides. And I go out on rides with a group. They're not a Christian group. They are a rough bunch. But I love to go on rides with them and chat with them. He tells a story of one time he went to a pub for a meal and a drink. They all stopped at this pub. Uh, it was a, like a weekend trip, so they were staying at a local hotel. And a lot of guys in the group knew he wasn't a Christian. And he said, as he lined up to order his meal, a scantily dressed lady came up to him and happened to be a lady of the night. You get my drift. Some of the people in the group had paid for her to entice him. And she came up and he said she was scantily dressed and said, these guys have paid for me to be yours for the night. He said she looked really cold, so he took off his jacket, gave her his jacket. And then he said, stand in line with me. And he said, choose a meal. Let's have dinner together. So they sat and had dinner together. And he had a discussion to her. He said, I just talked to her about her hobbies, her hopes, her dreams. And at the end of the night, he said, thank you for a lovely night. And she gave him his jacket back. And he said, she just welled up in tears and just started crying at the table. She said to him, no one has ever, ever treated me like that before. No one has ever treated me with such respect and dignity. Being a Christian means that sometimes we've got to get out of the boat. We've got to get out of the boat. And be confronted by the things of this world, not to experience them, but to challenge them. To represent Christ in that context and in those situations. To show people that there is another way. To turn the cultural values of this world upside down when we bring in the kingdom values of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Sometimes we're called to get out of the boat and to get our feet dirty because we are to be the very presence of Christ in those situations to people who are down and people who are broken. I pray as a church, we are not like the the disciples, who we hear nothing from again once they arrive at the capitalists, but we are the type of followers who follow our saviour out seeking to save the lost. May we be, or may we as a church, both individually and corporately, have the courage to follow in his footsteps, even when it might seem offensive to us. The people who are out there are worth getting out the boat for. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus and his heart for the lost. Sometimes, Lord, we are much like the early disciples. We tend to stay in the boat and miss opportunities to share your love and compassion and your kingdom values, your justice and your love with others in this world. There are so many people, Lord, in this world who are down and out, who feel excluded, who are hurting, and you have sent us into this world as your missionaries, your ambassadors, to show them a much better way. Help us to do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.